created for the MAPE community by the MAPE community. Left Unsaid is a podcast where we speak our truth, celebrate our talents, tell our stories, and explore what matters most to us. It's time to leave everything on the table and make sure nothing is left unsaid. Welcome to another episode of Left Unsaid. I'm your host, Carl Nazir, and uh, as always, I'm super excited for this conversation with someone I've known for many years, watched their career grow and blossom, and really just bring a perspective on something that's very important and very relevant to what's happening now. Philip, why don't you tell the folks who you are? Uh, hey, y'all. My name is Philip Chang. I am a MAPE 2015 alum, and I am currently a senior creative lead uh, at uh, Connie Nast. Thanks for joining. I mean, you just, the 2015, you're just like, I'm like going back. I'm just <laughs> like, wow, it's been six years um, since you did MAPE, since we first met. Before we get into all that, because I'm getting ahead of myself, you know, we got have to do the red, yellow, green check-in. Yeah. Checking yeah. in to see how you're coming in, how you're feeling today, where your heart's at. And just to give everyone a refresher on what that is, red is you're here, but you're there's so much going on, you're distracted. Right? But you're still here. You're still with us. Green, you're 100% here, fully present, mind, body, soul, spirit. All of it is here. Yellow somewhere in between. And remember, this isn't about changing where you are. It's just about so we understand what's going on with you, Philip, today and how you're coming in. So how are you coming in? Yeah. Um, no, thank you for asking. Um, I feel a, a solid neon yellow. So I feel good. Um, I feel good. I feel bright. But, you know, definitely I think there's a lot going on in the world. I think there's a lot going on, you know, with all of our, our day jobs, with our personal lives. And, you know, it's hard to it's hard to deny that, I think. Uh, but, you know, I think sometimes you allow yourself to, to get into something and then, you know, a yellow light can uh, can change to green real fast. I, lo- I love that. You're right. The, the, the idea of like there's always stuff happening and it's how that you then interpret it and make it be what it is can you know put you in whatever color spectrum or whatever how you're feeling that day thanks for sharing that glad you're here with us today mape 2015 seems like forever ago can you talk to us a little bit about your mape experience from like even how you heard about mape that application process to the whole experience of going through that summer yeah no thanks carl i mean i i remember that i was in my uh last year or going into my last year of film school at Columbia Chicago and I really was wasn't sure at the time you know kind of felt like I was in a crossroads in terms of what I wanted to pursue because originally through undergrad I assumed I was going to finish film school move out to LA go into the studio system and I think at that time the film production industry was at such a crossroads because Netflix was becoming so huge. The studio system was sort of upending itself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And then on a very personal level, I went out to LA and I realized I did not want to live in Los Angeles. No hate LA. I just, uh, yeah. I, I, I think New York is home for me in a lot of ways. And so I started putting those the pieces of those puzzles together. And then a Maple alum, Tiffany Jackman, actually uh, is one of my, one of my college best friends, older sisters. And uh, okay. she, she went through the MAPE experience, ended up becoming an agency producer in New York. And, uh, and so my friend, you know, said, my friend Danielle said, yeah, my sister is kind of doing, you know, what you are talking about. And, and so you should talk to her about it. And she was amazing. And she let me come to New York. 
shadow her. Um, she's working at Gray at the time. And it's so funny because, you know, every time I walk by that building now, I still uh, think about uh, how that was sort of, you know, my first sort of glossy agency experience and how sort of uh, how uh, intimidating the tower looked, you know, at, mm-hmm. across the street from Madison Square Park. And so, yeah, so I, I kind of went through that shadowing experience. I and then I was like, this is this is for me. This makes sense for me. I want to do it. And so I applied and got into McGarry Bowen as a digital production intern at the time. Um, just, had no uh, idea. Philip, what can we just can I just pause you for one second? Because I, 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 don't, I don't want to gloss over the impact that alumni can have on, you know, kind of young up and coming talent who want to see like that. Just one thing of letting of Tiffany Jackman, letting you shadow her in that space kind of really opened it seems like it opened up your eyes to like a new world that like okay if it's not film it could be this yeah and you know for all the alum out there like that's the power you have when you think about like how do we get folks interested in whatever career they might want that one moment just like hey just come spend the day with me can help change and shift the person's whole thing so i just wanted to call that out yeah absolutely um you know and it's it's so funny because um, you know as you talk about that it's like and maybe it's because you know we're sort of in the midst of like ad color and right now like the idea of like rise up and reach back is such a thing and for me it really did like I do owe like the first steps maker absolutely to to Tiffany so shout out to Tiffany I, you know I'm sure I'll send this to her after it's done but <laughs> but yeah no I really do and you know and that that the value of what it means for someone to that is on the inside to be able to just open that door for you a little bit and just even just show you the potential that's there is really life-changing. And so uh, that's absolutely not lost, the, the weight of that and the gravity of that, because I certainly don't think I would have realized that potential had it not just been really for that one day where, you know, I sat in a few production meetings, like got to walk through the office um, and just found myself allowing myself to be in a space and giving myself permission to take up that space, like literally and physically, because it's, it was a world that, you know, if you are say the son of immigrant parents or, you know, first generation that you're not quite sure if you belong there and you're not quite sure if you're allowed to be in that space. And, you know, if you think about this idea of, you know, glass doors, right. Um, glass doors that tend to be sort of like locked and that you can only access by, by, you know, key badges. Right. It's such a med- intense metaphor for what it means to be able to look at something and not know if you should be on the other side of it. And so it was really a great opportunity to just to just be present and to say, yeah, I can sit at this desk. I can hang out here. I can talk to these people and everyone's just a person. Everyone's just real. Um, and that was really, really helpful. And so, yeah. So from there, I, I said, New York makes sense for me. I still have some family out here, like on Long Island and such. And so I applied, uh, got in, uh, and uh, yeah. And then, you know, came to New York, met yourself, um, met Shannon, um, you know, bless her heart. Shout Shout out to Shannon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you know, just uh, really just the, the, the backbone of emotion. (laughs) <laughs> 150 you know craze interns <laughs> um but yeah it was and and it was really just an amazing experience in terms of again less so about sort of the functional kind of hard skills of a job which 
will eventually always come and are not really, uh, you're not really able to ever fully develop in three months, but more so about just realizing the possibility of what it means to be able to take up space, to be in a room also with 150 people that have a lot of shared experiences with you in terms of being a bit hesitant about what it means to be on the other side of that, you know, glass conference room wall. And, and that for me was, was incredibly life-changing. And, you know, the more, as more time grows, the more I look back on it, I, the more significance it carries because of that. I mean, it just, it never, it never ceases to amaze me to type how, how much, how long and how deep that impact goes from moments like that, which could seem so small and trivial to maybe the person who might be you know, doing it themselves or that, but those little moments can leave a, a lasting impact, which is, which is really great. Now that you are, you know, six years out of your MAPE experience, you've had a few different jobs, you're over at Condé Nast, like, can you just talk a little bit about what you do as a senior creative lead there? I lead uh, all of the uh, sponsored projects now that, you know, where we our Condé Nast brand, so our verticals, so Vogue and GQ, Bon Appetit, Vanity Fair, all of these brands that, you know, work with brand partners in, in terms of sponsored content, in terms of, you know, content that wants to sort of leverage the, the power and impact of our, our verticals. And then we work with brands to figure out the best way to tie their brand into our organic stories. And so it kind of became a hybrid of where I started in my career, which was more traditional sort of agency advertising, you know, and, and for context, I you know, really spent, I probably, I think the first like three to four years of my career wanting to just broadcast produce TV commercials. Mm -hmm. um, that was like the goal. And I really just wanted to get on like the big fat, like, you know, $2 million shoot, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, travel overseas, all that stuff. And I, and I did, you know, and I was, I was really glad and really thankful that I had that experience and it was pretty intense in the amount of time that I, I did it in retrospect, you know, but I think I walked off set during my last TV commercial in um, Mexico city. I was shooting like a beer campaign and I said, this probably is the last like old school TV commercial I'm going to work on. For a couple of different reasons and i think one of them was that you know agency producing in a lot of ways was much more about sort of the management of talent and money and vendors than you know than uh, i would have liked it to be um, on a personal level but then also that i think the industry was shifting significantly which you know i, I think we'll probably end up talking about a little bit more but uh that a lot of the client funds were starting to kind of be fragmented and funneled into mm. different things, kind of like what I'm doing now. And so um, I was like, yeah, this is probably the last TV commercial I'm going to work on. And so from there, I actually did a pretty hard pivot and worked strictly on just editorial digital video. Um, I was freelancing for Condé at the time after I left that agency role. And, you know, it was very limited brand involvement. And I was really just helping the Teen Vogue's, the Epicurious, you know, the bone apps of the world kind of just make digital content, you know, recipe videos, demonstrations, like, you know, tabletops, things like that. And I missed a little bit of the brand action. You know, I missed a little bit of like what it meant to, to create something, but have some client funds behind it and to do it in a more meaningful way. And it felt like kind of, a, it, there was a fun problem solving that I think everyone that is in advertising kind of enjoys about how do you, how do you get 
these two Django pieces to fit together because you got a very specific ask here and you got this thing that we want to do that's super creative. And I kind of missed that. And so I pitched myself as a creative because I was still a producer at the time. Um, I, I was at the time a supervising producer and I said, hey, I, I feel like I need to pivot. And I was pretty lucky in that I had... Uh, I had a VP I was reporting into that was supportive and said, yeah, sure, let's let's talk about it. Let's see what this looks like. Can you write out your job? <laughs> and, mm. and so I did. I like scoured the internet. I went to other job descriptions, like stole bullet points, like borrowed, like put all of this stuff into one place and said, here's how I think this could be as a concept. And then I, they said yes. And I was I was really surprised at that, but it was uh, it was pretty cool um, to have that opportunity. And then now I'm in a relatively new division, and so it's a lot of it is just sort of the you know, especially in a large sort of creative corporation, just a lot of building, just what it means to do this. Um, it's almost like opening up your own lemonade stand in a lot of ways, and also just being like, hey, this is a thing. This is a thing that we offer now. So you know, people, internal people, like come and hang out, like see what we're about, like see what we can make, um, see how we can make some money for the company. But uh, but also, yeah, it's it's a lot of being able to, I think, work with a lot of different verticals in a lot of different categories. I've learned more about food than I ever have in the past <laughs> two years. You know, I'm slowly doing that with fashion now, um, really, you know, taking a hard look at my closet because of that. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> and so, yeah, so, you know, it, but it's it's been... It's been definitely a very different experience than what I thought being a creative would be. But it also, it's one of those things, you know, it's the equivalent of, well, if the seat's not there for you, just pull one up yourself. And I think I very much so build the legs <laughs> and then pulled it up. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, people are like, well, get a seat at the table. It's like, well, if you build your own seat, that's not there, which is what you did. Because I love the fact that, like, there's some defining moments there. It's like that when you were like, I don't want to do this advertising thing anymore. What am I going to do? And that opportunity to actually like make your own role that you got later on and taking that on. Even the fact when you were like, I'm going to pitch myself as a creative, even though I'm a producer. Right? Yeah. It's like you took it into your own hands and said, okay, if I don't want to do this, how am I going to move forward and do what I want to do? And like you said, you built you did, you did one leg at a time. You were just like, I'm building <laughs> each piece. And then now here I am sitting in it. You know, all together. Yeah, it's you know, it's fun. It's a little wobbly. It's still the chair feels a little wobbly. <laughs> you got you got to um, tighten up the legs but, every once in a while. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, all good. But, you know, it's it's uh, it doesn't it doesn't come with its own instruction manual. That's for sure. Mm. You're kind of writing the manual too. So yeah, that's like, kind of what it feels like. Yeah. Legs are different colors. They're a little <laughs> uneven. The back of the chair is like half upholstered. You know, yeah, it's all good. It's still your yeah. chair though that you yeah. made yourself. Yeah. I mean, I love it. You touched on a lot of things, but I want to I want to bring it back. You mentioned the change in like the industry, right? You mentioned there's a lot of changes that have happened over mm -hmm. the past like three weeks, let alone the past like <laughs> you know a couple months, year and a half, two years, three, four years. Mm -hmm. Um, like you know, going like looking at your whole uh, story you've told, like starting in film school, right, mm -hmm. and then moving over to advertising production, and now over in publishing account, and that's but still like creating stuff, like making content i want to know from you like what have you seen change in kind of you know the landscape especially like with all that experience from film school to now especially when it comes to making content yeah that's uh such a tough question 
because it there's so many. Hey, you didn't you didn't come here for like <laughs> softball questions, yeah. did you? Because you yeah, came yeah, to the yeah. wrong podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I, I love a good curveball. No, uh, I I think so much has changed since I have in the short amount of time since I have left film school. So much has changed. I think when I first started film school in 2011, the studio system was still king in terms of mm. film. And my instructors in film school were, you know, ex-Paramount, you know, former sort of Hollywood union, depending on the skill set. And then by the time that I started MAPE, the streaming system had really been established, was super robust. We were no longer ordering DVDs by mail, you know, Apple TV was a thing. And then I think by the second or third year that I was in advertising, film production and content creation had become democratized. And mm. creators were king. And people that were making things in a very grassroots kind of way were really sort of rising to notoriety. And I think that this idea of film production as a craft became more specialized and more niche and the people making true film were doing so in a way that sort of they were moved into a space not too far from say fine art mm. and then content sort of took over the rest of it and so everyone has access to make and so then content is everything and video is everything and if everyone has access to make then the way that you define what film is in terms of how it's refined is no longer just by the making of it itself, but rather than sort of who deems it art, right? Who deems it sort of in this space of, of fine art, of high-end art, you know, and you saw that division so, so, you know, sort of slowly happening. And now, you know, that we hit sort of the, as we were, I think, hitting the end of the 2010s, you know, and, uh, you know, TikTok launched, you know, and then Reels launched, you know, then anyone can make, you know, and then I, there were, there were, you know, 14 year olds on that, on TikTok that were making content better than <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, these editors that have been in, you know, these careers for the longest time. And so I think that really, for me, set a fundamental shift in, in terms of how I had to approach my career as a creator and as a filmmaker because it felt like the ground had shifted so seismically that I wasn't sure which way was up, which way was down, and what it meant to produce film anymore versus what it meant to produce content. I found myself at this like sort of crossroads where I said, okay, well, if anyone can make, then you know, how do I, what do I want to pursue? And it felt like that middle ground of just being able to, to make high-end things in sort of a filmic way um, didn't feel as specialized anymore. You know, and and I'm still, I think, working through the journey of what it means to kind of like reclaim that and like reclaim those experiences of like going through film school and not feeling like that time is in some ways, quote unquote, like obsolete because mm -hmm. it's changed so much. Um, and I certainly don't think that it's obsolete and those experiences are obsolete because it's helped me understand the landscape contextually of where everything is now. But it definitely has shifted significantly. And I'm actually quite curious now what a curriculum in a film school is because you, uh -huh. you have no choice but to acknowledge the, the world that is out there in terms of content creation. I, I would love, yeah, I'm with you. I would love to see that 
as well. Because, you know, it's the same thing like we used to do, talk to universities and colleges about when I was, you know, at the 4As, is like the landscape of advertising shifts so frequently. How is that curriculum keeping up? How are you really preparing folks when, like you said, everybody can create, mm-hmm. right? So the students have surpassed the teachers in how mm-hmm. to create something. So what else is, what are you really teaching them in that respect when it comes to, I love, I love your whole um, notion of like the, the line between like the fine art and just creating. Like, is that where people go? Who knows? Mm-hmm. But I would love to see that because it's so important if we're like, you know, it's especially when you think and make it over to how folks recruit and hire in, you know, an actual company, right? If they're only looking at, you know, wh- whichever side you choose, film, students, or just people who create on TikTok, mm-hmm. is there a gap there that they're missing that's some that is filled somewhere in the middle? And also, like, what types of creators, right? Mm-hmm. If you all have access to create, who are the creators and what stories are they telling? It's also important. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think that, you know, there are certainly benefits to it because, you know, I, I certainly don't want to sound negative or apocalyptic about kind of the direction that things are heading in, uh, because I do think that there are some really, really great benefits to it. And I think that the creators who have access to these tools now that never did before are able to broadcast their stories in a way that, you know, a very, very select amount of probably predominantly like wealthy and white elite would have been able to do, you know, a la like all of the Academy Award winning, you know, best directors mm-hmm. for the past, like however many years. I think in that sense, there's a real power to it. Um, and I think that part is incredibly exciting, you know, and I think that it is just a question of, in some ways, I think it's a question of taste. I think it's also a question of, you see a lot of fast content, you see a lot of ephemeral content um, that's mm-hmm. being created. And it serves a very specific tool or it serves a very specific purpose, which I think is to draw a viewer in. But I think film in some ways is also a longer form of storytelling that involves very specific choices and decisions made in a longer term format that sort of adds up in summation to something that makes you feel greater than just the single moment of content in itself. And I think that tool and that ability to build that still takes time and taste and is still something that uh, if you are someone that's coming out of film school, I think can find real value in. And I think it's just translating that into whatever your profession might be, you know, in the landscape of media and advertising. Yeah. And I mean, I think you're, you're spot on. And like what I'm like picking up from you is like, cause you mentioned, you know, the, the white male dominance of the award shows and studio heads and just people who are there controlling this content and then the creators of that. And there seems to be a gap between, you know, maybe the people that are like, are the gatekeepers of the stories and the storytellers mm-hmm. as well, right? Mm-hmm. What, if you think about kind of the storytellers and maybe, you know, especially like marginalized communities, Right. We're talking black, talking, you know, AAPI, we're talking LGBTQI plus um, all women, uh, disabilities, people with disabilities. Like when you think about certain communities, like where are those gaps you see that will help, you know, get those stories out there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think the gap in a lot of ways comes, you know, if you're 
looking at sort of, um, I think if you're looking at gatekeeping in terms of storytelling, I think the gap still does come in that even though we've moved, you know, in terms of quote unquote, like TV or film to a more stream based model that the things that sort of have the funding that have the reach, um, are still, you know, held by X number of executives that sit in X number of studios. And I do think that the makeup of that boardroom is slowly changing, but that is still based on a certain number of views that come in, a certain number of sort of audience studies in terms of what's going to get viewership. It's something that sort of, in a lot of ways at my company, there was a microcosm of because we were working in digital video, but you know, in a way where we were trying to trying to rack up viewership for our content. And, you know, and I think that's actually the biggest difference if you look at sort of traditional advertising with bot media versus, you know, digital video and publishing is that, you know, one relies on high end craft or, or visuals or some way to hook people in. And then it just sort of, because there's bot media and there's a way to get it in front of somebody's eyes that the rest of it sort of is just there. And you can, you know, you're focused on product messaging, you're focused on something different. In the digital media landscape, when there's no bot media and you're just making something and hoping that someone gets to, you know, stays and watches with you because there's something that feels like there's a hook to it, or, you know, I, the, the more crass term would be clickbait, um, <laughs> that you are, you know, forced into, you know, certain parameters in order to make something. And, you know, food is such a good example of this because, you know, this is something that, I think in the past like two years, there were major conversations, major reckonings in the food world, major reckonings that might, and it's the sort of, you know, it's the mac and cheese versus Mapo tofu conversation, you know, I, I, I'm I not, I'm not part of any of those conversations. Can you explain, <laughs> can you explain a little bit about that, that reckoning in the food world you're, you're talking about? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think, during the height of the pandemic and lockdown, there was certainly, I think every corporation, every company, you know, sort of had, had a moment and, and they said, how can we do better, right? Where are we at and how can we do better? And I think the challenge in the food world was that in a lot of similar ways, the things that garnered the clicks, the views, the, the things that, you know, sort of felt like they were being gatekept, right? Um, was this notion that there's an audience that you were trying to serve. And so I think, you know, thinking about it from just a viewership perspective, right, and the way that a studio or a corporation, um, someone that relies on views and the success of a piece of content said the audience wants mac and cheese, right? Mm -hmm. And you can use mac and cheese as sort of that metaphor for any type of like just white story. <laughs> and that's kind of what it was. It was the audience wants mac and cheese, the audience will watch it and it, the proof is in the numbers. And then you had these groups sort of that said, but wait, hold on. We want to talk about Mapo Tofu. We want to talk about, you know, curry. We want to talk about, you know, jollof rice. Like we want to talk about all of these things that didn't quite feel like they would garner the same attention if you just put it out there. And it's such, it became such a metaphor for me for white stories as a whole, because that's what it was, mm. you know, mac and cheese in every way is sort of the, you know, it's, I mean, I, and I grew up in the Midwest, you know, it's an amalgamation of multiple types of cheese in a very bright neon color, 
with carbs. And there's certainly a part of it that resonates with my childhood, but it's not the only part of me. And But it certainly felt like the part that was really easy for everyone to sort of latch onto. And I, I think that way about how studios are looking at white stories. And I think that they say, well, we know that this is going to be a success. We know that this is going to be easy. And in the short term, you know, the way that these stories present, the way that we cast these folks in these stories present um, are going to be successful. And every corporation you understand also does have a balance then of, you know, what they need to do in order to keep the lights on um, and keep their viewership at a certain level versus like what it means to then also do the work of giving a platform then to the Mapo Tofus and to the Jollifite, you know. And so I think that I think that at that time that balance um, just didn't feel like it was enough. Mm. And and I think that's where sort of that reckoning and that moment came from because it was frustrating um, to see a lot of food brands do these like sort of like runaway hits, um, you know, and then to do and to and I think the the tipping point in some ways, I think, especially if you are a person of color and you see segments of your culture represented, but then not in its full entirety and and not told by people that look like you or have those shared experiences with you is really when then you it feels like you're violating a group in terms of you know, you're appropriating, right? Um, and so, so I think that was really a reckoning in the food world because there was also this conversation around sort of who are the gatekeepers of then not just the mac and cheese, but then who was going to let you have a piece of the story about Mapo Tofu or who is going to let you do a variation in the mac and cheese recipe where like maybe you can, you know, throw in habanero peppers or you know, and, and, and it was such a metaphor for the entire way that, okay. you know, stories of color have been told, I think, in, in Hollywood and who gets to decide. Um, but yeah, it was a very intense time. Um, but I also, uh, you know, I learned a lot and I made a lot of Chinese food at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it sounds like it's, um, first off, it sounds delicious. And it sounds as though that same reckoning that happened, there's no place that was safe from the reckoning that happened across, right? Mm-hmm. And if you think about, you know, film, I mean, we know it happened in advertising, film too, where it was like, you know, certain films with like Black Panther was not supposed to be a big hit, right? Mm-hmm. All the, you know, um, pressure on like Crazy Rich Asians to actually like, you know, follow up in that, you know, success and, and be a big hit. And even with uh, Marvel's latest release of, of Shang-Chi, right, was like, it's like, I mean, I remember reading stuff was like, oh, it's not going to be great. And it's like, oh, now it's smashing box office records and stuff like that. You know, it's like, it goes back to what you're saying. It's like, who is telling you if it's told by, by us for us, right? Mm-hmm. Thank you, Hulu. Who says it's not going to be a hit? Yeah. And I think that that does go back to, you know, there's a pretty small number of people that are sort of tied to the purse strings and tied to, you know, the, the checkbook. And that's where it comes, I think, back to is, you know, who's in that room making that decision or has the energy to push something forward and make that call. And I would say if there is something that I have seen now a few years out into the industry, it's that it takes energy because corporations are, are structured in a way that does sort of it doesn't, 
corporations are structured in a way where there's not accountability on a singular person. Mm. And because of that, it's very easy to walk away after your last Zoom call and just go, all right, well, not my problem for today. And that's, in a lot of ways, how companies are, are set up, just so that they can keep the wheels turning. Yeah. And I think it's someone who is in a high enough position, a senior enough position, an executive level position, who is going to push and make that effort in order to say, this is something that we should invest in. This is something that we're going to move forward in. And it's a much easier conversation to have if you can speak from personal experience and understanding that. And that just comes from diversity in terms of executive level leadership. So, yeah, I think I, I see that very much so, you know, at my company, but it's uh, but across the board. Um, but I also have seen shifts even from when I left MAPE to now. I guess you never really leave MAPE. You just you never MAPE. You are always you're just part uh, of the MAPE community. Yeah, you Listen, just. Uh, I've, I've been trying to get out for years. <laughs> here, here I still am. Yeah, it's uh, no, it's I've never been in uh, a fraternity before um, because I went to art school and. Uh, this is certainly the closest thing I had yeah, experience to because I I'd absolutely call the people I graduated with my my um, you know my siblings so oh. uh, yeah but but that all being said um, you know I think that I think that that shift is is happening um, and I think it's just one of those things that hopefully happens faster than what it is now but. You know, for the first time in my career, I now report into I report into a woman of color, and my senior vice president is man of color, mm. and you know, I I have a president that is an Asian American woman, um, and so those shifts are happening, and and you can really tell how significant of a difference it does make. Because there are just some unspoken things that are understood in terms of that experience, and so that has always been um, so that that now I don't take for granted. Great. So, yeah, and that's that's so important. I mean, even thinking about back on my career, I was talking with my parents the other day. I was like, "Oh, I've had a lot of bosses of color, like more so than I think most people have in these industries, and it has made such a difference." in my career i want to add, i mean i know we talked a lot about like people at the top i want to know if you can touch on quickly like do you see um a gap in the creators of the content and that could be both the fine art side and just you know the creative, when it comes to that and if so what is that gap it's funny that you bring this up because i was scrolling on tiktok last night and you know, the algorithm is good. It really gets you. Um, and Those, These algorithms know us better than we know ourselves sometimes. <laughs> it really does. Um, and it's a little scary. But I was scrolling and I came across a content creator who identified as queer. I was like sort of a part of the, you know, their brand, but also, um, you know, queer, Asian, American, and you know, I, and I think lived in, in a city. Um, 
And so I was like, one, the algorithm is scary because it knows that I'm a queer Asian American and I live in a city and I want to be served this content talking about specifically like, you know, queer API topics. It also reminded me that I haven't seen a lot of those creators. And, and even then, I, you know, I think I was served uh, this piece of content and in a pretty um, specific way, knowing that that algorithm reached me because of X, Y, and Z. But it's certainly a reminder that I don't see a lot of um, queer API creators out there in a way where they have been able to sort of reach an incredibly broad audience. Mm. I think that there are a lot of queer API creators out there, and I think there are a lot of, you know, generally like folks in the queer community and in the API community who have a lot to say about their identity and who have a lot of stories to tell about what it means to specifically in that, you know, in the cross between the two sort of reckon with, you know, how to, uh, how to meld the two together in their own identity. Um, and I think that's such an interesting and valuable and important story and one that I'm still exploring myself. Um, but certainly, you know, I scrolling in that moment and seeing that piece of content and the topic that was like being discussed, you know, and, it wasn't a particularly popular viral video. This maybe, you know, had a few hundred likes. Um, mm -hmm. And seeing that, you know, made me realize that there really is sort of this, this gap in, in content creators um, and, and their reach, like what they're able to reach, you know. Uh, and so if there's anything that I would hope for in the future moving forward is that those stories can become funded and understood in a way that is more universal because certainly I think, you know, it's like they say there's only what, like seven stories in the world or whatever. And so <laughs> certainly, you know, amongst them uh, that this is one of them and uh, can be a part of that. Yeah. I think, you know, you were talking about the shift and hopefully how the, the, um, whether it's film advertising, just the shift in how things are and who's in charge. I mean, th those two have to work hand in hand for that to happen. But yeah, I mean, but I think it's also great that we have that anybody has access to make. And so mm -hmm. the stories are at least, they get out there. Like you said, even if it's just a couple hundred views or thousands of views, they're getting out there more than they would have if we didn't mm -hmm. have access to make. So yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, we're living in a time right now where there are so many makers and you can see so many different stories. Once it gets over that hump of like, well, who's getting these big kind of the bigger ways, the film, the TV, um, that's when we know we're really taking that turn. Yeah. So I think it, this has been a great conversation. I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to give you a chance, you know, to have 60 seconds to, I mean, we talked about a lot. Yeah. Right. And okay. I know you probably got like one more gem to leave us with. So you got oh, 60 okay. seconds to leave it all out on the table Actually, and make sure nothing gets left unsaid. Pressure's on. No, I would say if there's anything to leave off with, it's that, and I think I'll, I'll say this specifically for folks that are perhaps try, in a period of transition, because I think that that is what I have felt myself in significantly over you know the past year. I think that's really what a lot of us have felt, especially you know with the impact of the pandemic. And so I think for folks that are in a period of transition, allow yourself grace, allow yourself time to not be productive because that is being productive. 
Um, and that's something I've had to tell myself. And then I think allow yourself to like zoom out and see where you're at and what you're creating in the context of things. Because I think I was so stuck on this idea that I had to be a producer in an X, Y, and Z way and a creator in an X, Y, and Z way. And that um, they're, the rules are being constantly rewritten. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, you can kind of take the pen in your own hand and, uh, and, and write them. So it sounds like lyrics to an Natasha Bedingfield song. So, <laughs> so you, better, you better get your, your writing credits. <laughs> yeah. But you're, um, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, one thing that stuck for me there was just this idea of like, in these points of transition, if really any time, right, give yourself that grace, you know, not being productive is, be, is being productive. I saw something about like how we've centered and created a, a society that values, that doesn't value rest, mm -hmm. right? But yet our bodies need, our bodies, our minds, our souls need rest yeah. to do that. So if we're resting, we're not productive, which means we're failing at life. And it's like, well, wait, says right. who? So I love, I love all that. And yes, get your songwriting credits because you deserve <laughs> it. That was great. Phil, thank you so much for taking the time to come talk to us, share your wisdom, share your perspective. Um, I hope that you give yourself a little grace and time to relax after this conversation, after this therapy session, right? Oh, you need time to decompress. You, you too, uh, man. You too. Yeah, it's always good to catch up, man. It's been, it's been a minute since, since we did, but it's good to see you. Thank you to the listeners. Thank you to the podcast team. Thank you to the Forest Foundation because, you know, everything we do, we do it for all of you. Appreciate it. And until next time. Bye.